Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Dial Up Boys podcast. I'm John Aldis, and joining me, as always, is the magnanimous Owen Poole. Owen's not feeling too magnanimous this week. Owen is recovering from finally succumbing to COVID-19. So if my voice sounds weird, uh, I mean, I think I'm feeling perfectly fine now. It's been a couple days, but um, if my voice sounds odd or hear any weird noises coming from my microphone, I apologize in advance. But uh, how are you doing, John? I am tired. I am very, very tired. I, uh, I, I'm running on about four hours of sleep in the last 48. Uh, so if, if I kind of go off on weird tangents, just know that it's because I am like delirious, uh, <laughs> but I'm hoping that I'm not, I'm not going to, it's just, it's been a, it's been a week. You know, you have those, those weeks every once in a while where you just kind of get ground into the dirt, which I mean, is kind of sad because it's only tuesday so <laughs> like it's gonna be <laughs> know, you, you can't even make the 30 rock lemon it's wednesday joke it's only tuesday it's only tuesday uh but you know i'm I'm having a good enough time i guess with with everything so i i can't complain too much and uh as as i said on the last episode i have a roof over my head and food in my stomach so really are things all that bad but this week on the show we are talking about something that i am actually super jazzed to talk about we are talking about the mike flanagan netflix series the fall of the house of usher uh which has now been out for roughly about a month so because of that this episode is going to have absolutely no restrictions on spoilers so if you have not seen the fall of the house of usher and you think you're gonna watch it i would say stop listening to this right now watch it and then come back trust me you will not regret it it is just right out the gate i will tell you right now i absolutely love this series it is one of my favorite thing pieces of media that has been released this entire year yeah i cannot remember a show or a film that you pestered me about more and not only you my sister who never ever pesters me to watch anything was like oh my god you have to watch this show like watch it right now watch it right now i'm like i'm I'm working on it okay there's like a thing where there's like shows that you're watching and you got to finish the thing before you move on to the next thing but i kind of bumped up house of usher in our um sort of watch calendar i guess if you want to call it that and didn't regret it one bit. I am not really familiar with the other Mike Flanagan shows. I know you have watched, I think, all of them. Yeah. Um, this was my I, first go-round. I haven't watched uh, Midnight Mass, I believe. Yeah. I think that's the one that I haven't watched. There's, there's Midnight Mass and Midnight Club. Or is it Midnight Club that I haven't watched? I'd have to look at I've heard cast. Midnight Club isn't good. I would have to look at like a picture of the cast to be able to tell you which of the two. I've watched, but then I've also, I've watched, uh, Hill house, obviously. Um, and then I've watched a bunch of his movies, Gerald's game, Dr. Sleep hush is really, really good. Uh, I actually just watched, uh, Ouija origin of evil, which I didn't know was him until I was doing a video for collider about it. Um, because fun fact about that movie, it's, uh, a prequel to Ouija, the 2014 film, which has a whopping 5% on Rotten Tomatoes, but Ooh. Ouija origin of evil Blumhouse and Universal brought in Mike Flanagan and basically was just like, Hey, do with this, whatever you want to do. And it has a Rotten Tomato score of 85. So that might be the single greatest increase from 
uh, original to follow up in terms of like Rotten Tomato score that I think I've ever seen. Like that's just. Insane. I mean, there's not much more room. There's not much more room to uh, to to improve upon that percentage score wise. Yeah. So uh, good for him. I mean, again, I'm not super familiar with his work, but I am very curious to watch more after having seen House of Usher. Do you want to give us a quick little rundown of the of the story before we get into it? So uh, basically, this is a series that follows the House of Usher, specifically focusing pretty heavily on Roderick Usher, the patriarch of the family, who is the head of a massive pharmaceutical corporation. Um, it's like one of those like hyper wealthy individuals. Um, and he basically is telling a story to, uh, to this guy about how all of his children have been dying off like recently. Cause they've all died within the matter of like less than a week. All six of his children have died and kind of telling the story around it and, building up this supernatural element to it because he made it effectively a deal with a devil and in return for becoming hyper rich his entire family line uh dies with him because he's he has he has an illness so he's going to die soon so it's it's a whole thing it is an adaptation of uh edgar Allan poe work um there is of course the overarching story which is the fall of the house of usher um, but then each individual episode is in of itself a adaptation of another Poe story. Or in the case of the last episode, it's actually an adaptation of two. Uh, so you have the first episode, which is just set up. And then the Poe stories that it winds up adapting are Mask of the Red Death, uh, The Black Cat, or no, sorry, Murder in the Rue Morgue, Black Cat, uh, Telltale Heart, which is fantastic, and I'm I'm gonna have a lot to say about Telltale Heart. Goldbug, Pit in the Pendulum, a classic, and then the final episode is the the overarching one is the Raven, but they also like cleverly adapt the Cask of Amontillado, which I was sitting there the whole time just waiting for that, waiting for that story to get some lip service. And as soon as in the last episode the bottle of Amontillado comes out, I was like, oh shit, he's done. It's over. <laughs> well, they didn't really hide that one all that much because you have several moments of a very pensive Roderick Usher just staring at a brick wall. I'll be I'm honest. Like, oh, yeah, there's someone behind that wall there, isn't there, buddy? I'll be honest. Like, I love Poe. I've read a whole bunch of his work. I didn't put two and two together that that's what was happening when he was staring at that wall. I don't know why my brain just didn't register it until I saw them bricking it up. And I was like, oh, shit, that's right. Yeah, I was very curious the entire time. Um, you know, I sent you some theories that I so I'm, I'm not a huge Poe guy. I, I, I'm familiar with Casco Montiato specifically because we actually read that in high school. Yeah, we did. As an example of an unreliable narrator, which district attorney who Roger is telling the story to is basically accusing him of being an unreliable is accusing him of being an unreliable narrator the entire time. Turns out he was a pretty darn reliable narrator. Um, even getting all the details of his kid's death correct, which I guess we could perceive that to be Verna told him all about it or he just, yeah, is... there, there is that moment where Augie says like, how could you possibly know all this? Like, how could you possibly know the because he he'll like describe moments when his kids were alone 
and like there was no yeah. one else around. And I was like, how could you possibly know what was happening then? But yeah, you would just assume that like Verna, uh, Carla Gugino, who is the like the nondescript like demonic force, the devil, the raven, as it were, in the story. Maybe she told him because you know she did. She was kind of breaking it all down to him at the end. Um, or maybe he just intrinsically knew. I don't know. Like, there's a whole lot of supernatural I think, yeah, I think shenanigans that goes on in the story. I think he says they told me or she told me at one point. Um, it took me a while going through the series to buy that supernatural things were actually happening. The big narrative question is one of the interesting things about the way they f- structure the show is that there's not really any huge, huge, huge surprises at the end of every episode. Like, it's set up right away all of these kids are dying it's set up right away that you know it's they didn't hide the fact that roderick was sick which i thought was interesting i thought that could have been a reveal that they did later on because there's all this stuff about him trying to like find a cure for his disease and all that all that stuff and so the big narrative question like the mystery box aspect of the story is who or what is verna and so i spent a lot of mental energy trying to figure that out throughout this throughout the show and I thought the answer was satisfying enough because we don't really get a true answer as to what her like real nature is. Um, she talks about what she gonna... does in terms of it being a job. So it's it's like, is she a demon and she's tasked to do this forever by by the devil or like what like what's going on with her? They don't really necessarily explain it too too in depth. You just know that she is like an evil presence. But or, is she I guess, that is evil? She evil. That is a question because she shows she shows legitimate remorse several times throughout throughout the series. Because as as the show is going on, obviously each episode is is its own semi-contained story that focuses on each of the Usher children, and so you see her interact with a lot of them and quite a few of them she is like straight up apologetic right before they are horrifically murdered and there's there is uh the moment that probably hit me the hardest in the last episode is her being like straight up like borderline kind to Roderick's granddaughter uh because yeah yeah obviously uh the entire fam- bloodline has to die like so much so that in that in that moment, like when Verna starts talking to the uh, granddaughter, she's just like, I shouldn't have to explain to these people what bloodline means. Like kind of being like Roderick couldn't keep in his pants, kept having a bunch of children. He knew what was going to happen to these people. And now, like, you know, what's going to bloodline includes people? her, which which is she feels pretty bad about to the point where she basically like tells her this whole story about how she saves her mom from her dad. And then her mom goes on to do all these wonderful things and saves all these lives. And she's like, I just want to make sure that you knew that that was because of you. Um, That that is to me, that is the, that is the highlight of the entire series. That scene to me is solid gold. If I could give one scene in this entire show an award, it would be that scene because Gugino just absolutely crushed my soul in like the best way sitting there explaining the the like ripple effects that the the decision that this girl made 
like ripples out across all these people and touches all of these lives. And I was like sitting there, I was like starting to cry. I was like, oh, it was so sweet. Well, and what's, and what's especially great about it is that it kind of mirrors her conversation with Roderick saying, essentially going through all of the people who were hurt by, by him and the ripple effects of that. And so it's kind of like, because they go to great pains to show that pretty much everyone in the family are kind of, not kind of, they're pretty terrible people. Basically, everybody except for the granddaughter is a horrible person. Yeah. And so they basically have her, like, Lenore, the granddaughter, which is, like, great name choice for that character. All, all of these characters are named after, like, famous Poe characters. And so, of course, Lenore Including, is from the Raven. I, I wasn't paying that close of attention in the Murders of the Room Org episode, but that, they, that, that the place is actually called the Room Org, and it's not like some kind of, you know... Clever name or something. Like, it's actually called Yeah, that. like, it's literally called that. Yeah. Which I thought was funny. The The adaptations are, like... You know, obviously everything is modernized, but the adaptations themselves are actually, like, very spot on to the stories as they were. Um, obviously, some things are changed up to, like, help with the narrative, because it is part, fitting as part of you know, like this overarching thing. Like, for instance, Pit in the Pendulum <laughs> was changed up and that, you know, he's stuck in this, like, building that's collapsing and it's a piece of metal swinging as opposed to an actual blade. But it, other, like, other than small details like that, the adaptations are actually, like, really, really spot on. Except for Goldbug, weirdly. Although Goldbug... The the adaptation there, the, the part of it that matters the most comes through, which is just that it is greed in a sense that ult- – greed and vanity in a sense that ultimately kill um, – uh, crap, what's the dog? Tammy. Yeah, Tammy. Uh, Tamberlane, I believe is her full name. Yeah, it's it's greed and vanity that ultimately kills her. Well, speaking of, of death, do you want to talk about our favorite show, Deaths? Because that is kind of a key part of the show. Yes. Every single episode builds up to the death of one of the kids, except for the first one. I feel because like... You, you watched the premiere of this at Fantastic Fest, correct? Yes, I saw the first And they two. showed it in the first two. Because the the first, f- you, you, you have to watch the first two. At, at the same time, in yes. my opinion, if you're going to watch this show, you got to watch the first two. I, I, I will throw this out there. It was a hell of an experience watching those first two episodes of Fantastic Fest. But at the same time, I almost wish that I hadn't because, you know, I saw those two episodes of Fantastic Fest and I, do, I didn't have screeners for the show. Few other people had screeners and, ha- and were able to watch the rest of the series. I was not. I had to wait a month. To watch the rest of the series, and it was uh, that's torture brutal. because to me, the best death in the entire series and the one that stands out the most is the death or deaths at the end of episode two, the Mask of the Red Death, when the you know Prospero is uh, having this giant. It's a blackmail orgy. It's an orgy that he's throwing for the purpose of blackmailing people. And for fun. And for fun, because, like, well, I mean, like, here's the thing. If you're going to throw an orgy for the sake of blackmail, you might as well also partake in the orgy. Like, I feel like that's... Yeah, who's going to blackmail you? You're the one doing the blackmail. You're the guy with the cameras. Um, But that end sequence where uh, they think they're turning on the sprinklers to get everybody, you know, wet with water, because, you know, obviously wet 
is sexier. Uh, but in actuality, like the the far- the pharmaceutical company had been using this place to like store toxic waste, and so everyone just starts melting because instead of water, they're getting doused with horrifically corrosive acid. It's just one of the like that is a moment that when I was watching it on the big screen. My jaw hit the floor. And I think everybody in that theater had the same reaction of just what the fuck? This is so fucked up what I'm watching, but in like kind of an awesome way. Oh, definitely just, an awesome way. It's just so like I like I sort of knew it was coming because like they keep drawing attention to like, oh yeah, we're gonna turn on the sprinklers. And I was like, everybody's gonna fucking die. Also knowing the story, The Mask of the Red Death, and knowing that in the end of that story, it's a whole bunch of nobles who are having a party who all get wiped out by this illness that they think they're safe from. I was like, everybody's going to die. That's what's about to happen. But it was just so brutal and so grotesque, and I loved it. It was just like, I, to me, that is the way that you start off the like massacres that this series brings with it. You got to start out with Yeah, that. it really... Yeah, it really put its put its uh, best foot forward, so to speak. And I, I wasn't fa- I'm not familiar with that with that post story, but I would highly it's pretty, recommend. It's pretty clear when you're sorry. Go ahead. Watch the Vincent Price film Mask of the Red Death. It is so good. Let's check it out. But um, they make it pretty clear what's going to happen, and that's kind of you know the the theme for every episode is like you that there's no ambiguity that this person at the beginning of the story, because it's being told, you know, story within a story that this guy is dead. It's just a matter of like how it happens. And, you know, they make references to the sprinklers a bunch of times when the, when Prospero's talking to the contractor he has to set up this party, he's like, yeah, we can't get the water hooked up to the main, to the main line of the city. He's like, whatever, we got tanks up top. It's fine. And I'm like, Oh, I don't think it's fine. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> and, I don't. I don't think those are going to be water tanks, bro. And then you get that really cool introduction to Verna. I feel like that's kind of like her main introduction to the to the series. I don't remember if she pops up earlier, but um, do you see? I think her this in is the like first episode. I think you might. I think. But... I think there's the bar flashback in the first episode. Yeah, that's right. That's because right. that's a reoccurring uh, scene that we keep visiting throughout. Is we keep going back to New Year's Eve. Or I guess it would be New Year's. Past New Year's, yeah. When Roderick and Madeline are like, they just did the deed of killing Roderick's boss, and so they're trying to make an appearance at a bar so that they have an alibi. And uh, that bar is where they meet Verna and where they make the deal. But throughout the series, you keep seeing this scene pop up as they're like building towards it and yeah i think it's a big reveal that they made the deal with her yeah and i think that i think the first episode has one of those scenes don't quote me on that i've i've only watched the series twice you would think i would know this (laughs) but like the filmmaking and the editing and the pacing of that particular scene like the fact that you know it's going to happen and it's a very slow build up and they have that like they have that like super dark cover of the Nine Inch Nails song, of already a super dark song, and then you see Verna like telling all the like service employees to like get, like to get out, which also leads to the question: Is Verna actually evil? She's like saving working class people, but like is cool with the rich people dying. Yeah, um, but that might have more to do with the post story than than her specifically. Well, because again, um, the, the the whole plot of mask of the red death is that there is this there's basically the plague is going on 
um, and all the commoners are dying off, and it's it's the Red Death is the plague that is killing everybody. But there's this prince, Prospero, who, you know, obviously he doesn't have to worry about this disease because he's rich and he thinks that like that's a that's a poor person disease so he throws this massive party with all these lords and somebody in red in a red robe comes and crashes the party and prospero chases them down uh and what he ultimately finds is he finds somebody infected with the red death and so the red death spreads throughout the party and kills everyone um and it's kind of just meant to show that like the rich aren't safe either is kind of the kind of the thing there um so yeah i i think in a sense it does kind of relate back to that to the original story because she is like it is the the common folk that she's leading out the workers and everything like that these people who are largely innocent they make it very clear that the people who are attending this party are like only the hyper rich the hyper famous like, because Prospero says he's curating a list of only, like, the best of the best. Like, if you are if you are anybody, you have an invite to this party. If you don't have an invite, you're a nobody. So he's got, like, the children of senators and, like, ma- major athletes are there and all that sort of stuff. So, you, yeah, again, you have, like, the modern-day lords and ladies. In a lot yeah, of yeah. And just the, the slow build, and then once they finally flip the switch, you get that really cool perspective shot of the... Of the like the water droplets coming down, which you already saw earlier in the episode when he like gets a little drop of water on his phone, and yeah, just the brutality of how like fast it switched. Like once they flip that switch to get that on there, it's like shocking to watch. Everyone Again, I'm not super familiar with and just with Mike Flanagan shows, so I wasn't sure what to expect in terms of like horror and blood and guts and brutality. But that was like a big shock to my system, and. I remember f- finishing, I was watching it with, uh, with my partner, Ellie. And I was like, okay, we're watching the next episode, right? Like right now we're watching it. So I can imagine how horrible it was for you to watch the first two episodes and have to wait an entire month. It was, it was painful, but I will say that it was, it was probably worth it because the experience of watching it with a theater full of people was really cool. Um, and being able to obviously see it early and see it. And especially at fantastic fest, the, cr- the crowds at fantastic fest were so amazing and, even if even if I'm not sent back for work, I might actually just choose to go back to Fantastic Fest on my own because I had so much fun because the environment was just so cool. And seeing it there was was definitely a highlight. Um, but it was very painful having to wait, especially after that. I, I, yeah. I, will, I will say I think that as far as Mike Flanagan, as far as his work, I think that's the most like – Probably the most brutal moment in any of his work as far as I've seen. Um, He hasn't had very many scenes where like dozens upon dozens of people are just getting butchered. His his horror is usually a lot more like intense, but in a like personal way. Like it'll be the kind of thing where like you're being scared because there's a person in the far background just out of focus. It's like his horror tends to play with pareidolia more than anything, which is just your brain thinking that there is something there, even if there isn't actually something there, which you do see in uh, I believe it's in the first episode. One of my favorite scares of the entire series is in that episode. And it's when he's talking to Augie and he's he's talking to Augie about his mom. And he and he says, like, my mom's behind you. 
And Augie's just like, no, she isn't. I'm like, I'm not going to turn around. You're not going to play these psychological games with me. And Roddy's just like, okay. And you just can see, faintly see a figure move behind Augie. And it's just Yeah, that like, was so good. You're like, ah, like that's more Flanagan style. He doesn't really do like this hardcore gore stuff. Um, so seeing that took me aback even more because I was like, I I like I know what Flanagan is capable of, but I didn't think that he was gonna go quite that hard. But it was just so good. But there so many of the other deaths were fantastic as well. Uh murder. Yeah, I wanted to cover so that was also my favorite. Because I don't think you can top that one. Um, yeah, no. I think the next best one has to be Freddy, which is the last one. Uh, so Freddy is the eldest boy. Yes. And so one of the guests at this party where everyone, not not everybody, because she manages to survive, is uh, Freddy's wife slash Prospero's sister-in-law. Yes. So she survives with horrific burns. She's just like basically in a full body wrap the entire rest of the show and he's obviously very uh curious as to why she was at the party and so he becomes very obsessed with her and her uh potential infidelity and starts doing coke and he's just like becomes a total disaster to the point where in the penultimate episode he decides he's going to rip all of her teeth out with pliers yeah he just becomes exceedingly more cruel every time that you see him for the most part and more unhinged and just more the more evil and yeah. and verna um, actually verna actually draws attention to that in his death scene because and that was that, that that's why it's so good because she like you know the the pendulum is like sitting there swinging getting closer and closer to him and she's like laying down next to him and she's just like you know there's like so many different ways that i could have done this uh heart attack in your car the coke would have set that one up nicely like it could have been like really really nice and then she's just like but you just had to take her home and you had to pick up the pliers <laughs> so i'm like, gonna make this as gruesome as possible so you have the thing and and it doesn't cut him clean in half in like one go it's like swing once one big cut swing and it just like keeps going and then and, the building collapses on him. And then the building collapses. <laughs> it just as like an extra fuck you. <laughs> well, I love the uh, – so they introduce – it's not super important to the overall plot that like paralytic drug that she was using on the monkeys and the monkeys are a whole other thing. Um, but then he was, using, that he he was, was using it on his wife. He was using this paralytic drug on her, but then like Verna basically like subliminally makes him put it in his cocaine so that next time he does a bump of cocaine – he just like collapses, which was just like a nice, it was great as an audience member. Cause like, okay, how's, how is this one going to go? I'm really excited to watch this guy die. And then he does another bump of Coke and then he just goes collapses. I'm like, Oh yes. He must've put the paralytic in his cocaine. Yes. Okay. This is awesome. And then you get Verna doing her whole speech. And that one was like more, more satisfying because he's, he, he was the last one to die. So he's had quite a bit of screen time he's, and he said, spent a lot of his screen time making us hate him. He might arguably be the most evil person in the entire show. Like Roderick has done some fucked up stuff, but he's done fucked up stuff in the, like, you know, he's, he owns a pharmaceutical company. So as Verna points out, his body count is astronomical because he's like, he owns a, a pharmaceutical company is in the midst of like, an opioid epidemic but freddie is like outwardly disturbed 
and he's unhinged and he does cruel things like Roderick. It, it it's it's business when it comes down to it, which we can debate. You know the cruelty of business all episode long, but it's not out and out like looking them in the eye and tearing their their teeth out. Like Freddy is fucking evil. Um, and so <laughs> Verna having that moment sitting there, like breaking down, like you brought this on yourself. Like I'm doing this because you're a piece of shit. All right. I have an appointment with your dad. I'm going to leave now. It was just so satisfying. And it's like, yeah, out of yeah. out of all the deaths, I, I usually felt bad when it came time for them to die. Like, even though they were all shitty people, I was still like, oh, they're dying in like some really brutal, like, and horrible ways. But when he was dying, I was just like, I have no sympathy for you, dude. I do not feel bad for you in the slightest. Well, and the, the, the way they timed it, too, in that particular episode, because that episode did a ton of work. I think that's probably... Aside from the first two, like in my opinion, the first two are incredible, amazing. And then the last two are incredible yes. and amazing. And then the middle is still really good, but it definitely doesn't live up to the first two and the last two. But that they timed the Freddy's death scene, like kind of right after Verna's true nature is revealed and the, and the whole deal that, that they both make with her. And that was just like, I don't know, it was just re- a really good choice narratively to, uh, to put that right after because you just get more of an idea of like what she's actually about going straight from, you know, seeing kind of the end of that flashback at the bar straight to her kind of like completing her mission, so to speak. Yeah. It was an oddly satisfying end for a character. So it's keeping on with the like great deaths. I do want to talk about telltale heart. Uh, I knew you were going to bring that. That was my next one, too. That is, like, here's the thing. The actual death at the end of Telltale Heart is not is not super flashy. It's relatively simple. Um, but the context around the death is 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 just so fantastic. It, it helps that I really, really like the story, Telltale Heart. Um, it's, it's an example of Poe leaning much more into, like, psychological and, like, psychological horror and more into like the existential dread than some of his other stories because it if you don't know the story of the telltale heart basically this guy kills his friend and uh buries him under the floorboards in his house and he is slowly driven mad over a few days because he keeps hearing the beating of his friend's heart and he's the only one who can hear it and it's getting louder and louder and louder and louder and louder until eventually he is he's driven mad and that's that's effectively what you get in this episode because all throughout the series up to this point we were introduced to this this technology that she was working on where she was building like effectively this thing to like help pump the heart is this device they they don't I think really... she called it like a like a like a heart mesh or something yeah they don't really go over exactly what it does you just know that it's like something to do with the heart and roderick wants it because it's gonna help him with what he's sick with um and also it's gonna make a buttload of money <laughs> like that's because you know capitalism and so instead of hearing like a heartbeat throughout the entire series she's hearing that she's hearing like the beating and like the mechanical whirring of this thing going and then obviously in the last moments it is revealed that she killed her girlfriend and uh was kind of had a bit of a mental break after that and tried to like save her girlfriend i guess by cutting her open and putting this device in her dead girlfriend that was chest. the in, that was the impression that i got from it that 
she thought that it would somehow bring her back to life by sticking that thing in. Well, and then, and and then, then she just went off the deep end entirely and she thought that her girlfriend was still alive because she kept like calling her girlfriend. And like when there's the moment where Roderick discovers the body, she's like talking to her girlfriend's dead body as though like she's still alive. And then she it almost seems like she like channels Verna for a minute. Like it like it looks like Verna like almost possesses her because she like talks like she basically is like she brought this on herself and then she stabs herself with a knife. So I'm wondering if there was like a moment where Verna was like talking to Roderick through his daughter, uh, right before she killed herself with a giant fuck all knife. I honestly didn't, didn't notice that at all. That makes perfect sense. I was more, I, I thought they did, a, did it really, and they revealed it in a really clever way because she's hearing the noise at like her work and other places. And then Roderick comes to her apartment to like, ask her like so about this thing how's it going uh, could i maybe get it myself soon like what's what, what's going on and then if the noise comes up again and he hears it too so yeah, he that is the he is the only person up to that point who had who had heard it because she brought it up a couple of times but nobody else heard it that was the uh, the one time that someone else heard it and it's because it was literally there because it was actually there and it was just such a like when he opens the door and there's just this room that's just splattered with blood and just this dead body with the open chest just sitting like on a counter slumped over like it was just so heartbreaking but also like vicious and visceral and grotesque but it was just like it was a fantastic way to end that story i felt because you know she is driven mad by the sound and then also she dies because it's the fall of house of usher and everyone everyone has to die by the end or else the house of usher doesn't fall but it was just so brilliantly done and as i said that is one of my favorite poe stories so having that adapted so well i just i have to applaud them for that i thought that it was brilliant and honestly all of the even the ones that I don't think were super, super exciting deaths were still memorable for their own ways. Like Murder at the Rue Morgue. She's sitting there like talking to Verna, who's on top of this counter. And Verna is like telling her like all this stuff about like, you didn't have to be here. Could have done this like in your bed. Like, but you just, you had to be here. So this is the way that it has to go. And then she pulls up her camera and you see through the camera lens that instead of Carla Gugino... <laughs> It's a goddamn like angry chimp right before she gets mauled. Yeah, really. I think the so um, Murders of the Remorgue and Black Cat I thought were pretty good. I think Goldbug was definitely the weakest. Not necessarily because like her death wasn't cool, because the the coolness of the death or the like it doesn't really like I think coolness is the wrong word. I don't know. I think her character was a bit underdeveloped, especially in comparison to Freddie. Yes. She was she, I think of all the children, I think she she was probably the least developed. Like, even Prospero, who was only in two episodes. I feel like I had a better grasp on, like, what was going on with him as a character. Whereas Tamerlane, I didn't... Like, I kind of understood what what her, she was all about. But not enough that I didn't really feel like I had, like, a deep read on her. It was just kind of just... She was, you know, vain and greedy and tired. Like, that was her character. Was that she was very, very tired. Which I can relate to maybe a little bit too much because uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't sleep very often either. So I'm right there with her on that one. Uh, just, don't, although, just don't start hallucinating and smashing mirrors and I think you'll be okay. Well, and I, I'm pretty sure I'm also not a cuck queen. Um, also just because I don't think that being a guy, I can be a cuck queen, but 
No, you have to you have to cut off the the queen part, and then, well, and then that's, uh, that's what it is for guys. You replace the queen with old, and you become a cuckold. Um, which that was one of the weirder. That was one of the weirder character traits, but I do understand what they were trying to do there with like she is so disconnected from everyone else that she can't even like be intimate with her own husband. She has to like watch someone else do it. And when I say intimate, I don't just mean sex. I mean like straight up like they were hiring escorts to come over and like have dinner with him. That's that's how disconnected she is. It's just I will say that her her death it wasn't like super it doesn't stand out super well but i will never not enjoy a good mirror scare like when your reflection starts doing stuff that it shouldn't be doing i always i always get a kick out of seeing that like anytime that pops up in media it's always just such a it's so like i don't know there's something about it that just hits me on a primal level as far as like how much that freaks me out Maybe I maybe I have a thing about mirrors. I don't know, but I was gonna say, don't take any psychedelics ever. <laughs> uh, I don't plan on it. Or just I, avoid mirrors completely. I will throw this out there. I have no intention of ever going to Burning Man, so uh, I don't think I'm gonna be taking psychedelics anytime soon. You can take psychedelics other places, but <laughs> I okay. But here's the thing: I do not have like I don't have a psychedelic guy. Like I, I can't like it would be it would be a struggle for me to get psychedelics right now. Uh, so. I don't have to worry about it. I feel like the only place that I could realistically imagine myself doing like acid or shrooms or something like that would be at something like Burning Man. That's not going to happen for me anytime soon. Um, well, I, I think um, in, in Goldbug, though, I think the most important sort of aspect of that episode for me was that it seemed like they were really towing the line between whether what, what was happening was supernatural or not for quite a while. They, they, they reveal the, as you mentioned, the sort of scare moment with with uh roderick's mom being there and you're like oh my god is she actually there or like what's what's really happening and they reveal i think in episode two that he has some degenerative disease that causes him hallucinations it's like some form of dementia i think they call it and so you can write off a lot of those things as like Oh, they're just hallucinations. Maybe his kids have the same, maybe it's like a genetic disease and they're just seeing hallucinations and all these things are happening. And that maybe Verna isn't actually real. Or if she is, she's just like, I think either, either Arthur or Madeline says something like, Oh, well maybe that's the kid of the bartender. Cause they recognize her. It's like, Oh, maybe that's the bartender's kid that you slept with and wants to be part of the family. Yeah. But then when Madeline goes up to her to try and grab her, when Tammy freaks out at her presentation and like disappears in the smoke, you're like, okay, this is supernatural. We're watching supernatural things happen. See, I think the major, for me, the thing that sells that it's, it's not a shared delusion of the family because when they introduced the whole, like, Oh, it's a degenerative, like psychological disorder. I did kind of, my brain did immediately go, Oh, all of the spooky stuff is going to be all in their head. And they're all just suffering from this thing. But the fact that Mark Hamill acknowledged Verna was enough for me to go, okay, there's actually like, she's actually there because like he like shows like pictures of her and stuff like that. And is like directly talking about her. And I'm like, well, he's not family. So he doesn't have that, that brain disease. So whatever, like whatever's going on is actually going on to a degree. But- My theory was that maybe they all have the same disease or he was testing some kind of new medicine on them that was causing it to happen. I could have seen that being a thing, but again, it comes down to the fact that Mark Hamill 
was able to like straight up interact with her that it was like all right well but but he was able to interact with her or like see her in the photos but it didn't necessarily mean that she was some super supernatural entity quite i mean i kind of i i kind of figured that was what was going on but the that scene in goldbug was like confirmed she's a supernatural entity yeah there's no more like theorizing around it in some other way i do appreciate the in goldbug the moments where there's like a sudden time skip for her because it's like implied that she like fell asleep and was like maybe like sleepwalking or whatever because she'll just be like doing something and then all of a sudden it's done and even she's like what the fuck just happened and it's like oh well she's like super tired and as somebody who does not have the best sleep schedule again i i relate to it in like the most horrible way possible because i have had moments like that where like i went to go like make a sandwich or something and i remember standing up to walk to the kitchen and then i remember sitting back down at my desk with a sandwich but i don't remember what happened in between I just know that I made the sandwich apparently like that is it's just such a such a like cool moment and really start like really further sells that aspect of her character that I just thought was was super interesting and super cool. I'm trying to think if there are other want to talk about the deal, the deal. I feel like we need to talk about the deal. That's like such a key key thing to the entire story. So basically in a nutshell, it's just like, hey, Verna came to them at the bar or rather i guess they came to verna really it's up for interpretation about whether or not verna would have even been there or whatever but she offers them this deal that's like hey you will be as powerful as you want all of your ambitions will come true uh however when you die your bloodline dies with you and she she says she's like what is what is more cruel 70 years of luxury and wealth and riches or an eternity in mediocrity effectively uh and so she's that that's her like selling point is is like look your family's not gonna last very long but when they're alive they're gonna be like super well off so like it's gonna be be pretty baller like (laughs) you're, you're actually doing them a favor by doing this like even though it's like really messed up i do appreciate that uh verna a couple of different times says what people would have been like if they if the deal hadn't been taken like she points out she's like roderick would have been a poet she's like he would have been a poor poet but he would have been a poet uh oh and the and that frederick would have been a dentist yeah like that's kind of the fucked up thing is he would have been a dentist (laughs) because obviously uh uh freddie and tamberlin were born before the deal so yes assumably their their life would have still happened um just not in this which way. is probably the darkest one of the things i i, I felt watching the show is like it, it, it's hard to view roderick as just this like pure villain character especially because in the flashbacks there's this whole plot line where he's working with augie essentially in the past as like an informant against the company before you become ceo and you see him in his like family life with before he became super wealthy, and he seems just like a perfectly nice guy for the most part. Yeah, it, it. And then making this deal is like the key moment where he just like he just becomes a super turns into to, to complete villainy because, as is pointed out, he already had two kids, and Madeline, who takes the same deal, decides I'm never gonna have any kids. 
yeah but which, then he continues to have kids the entire the entire show you are led to believe that like madeline is the like truly evil one but when you like kind of like obviously they're both awful um but like younger madeline is very uh very vicious very blunt very like she's she's like she's gonna step over you to get where she wants that kind of person uh whereas like younger roderick is shown to be much more caring more empathetic you know obviously he has a family um he's got uh anna lee but then you know he makes this decision literally sacrificing his two kids who he already has whereas madeline she makes the same decision but she doesn't have children so it's like less of a it's still like kind of a fucked up thing to do but I feel like less of a blatant evil because she, oh yeah and and she's and she's more she's more hesitant even yeah despite the fact that she doesn't have kids like I, if I remember the, the the way the shot was it was kind of like you know kind of like a triangle with Verna doing kind of a shot reverse shot with each of the characters and then most of that conversation is between Verna and Madeline when she kind of introduces the deal and she's like asking her questions about it. And she just like, it's as simple as what I'm telling you. And then it just cuts to Roderick being like with his drink. And he's like, sounds like a done deal to me. Yep. And he doesn't even really question it or ask questions about it. He's just like, yeah, sounds like it sounds like a great, a great deal. I'm into it. Like, no, yeah, I'll sacrifice my kids. Let's go. Chop, chop, make it. here's, Here's a question. Did they need to make the deal? Because I was under the impression watching their whole scheme of when they, they, because they kill his boss and there's a whole plan they have to basically install him as CEO. And it seemed like a pretty good plan and they were going to get away with it. And so it seemed like making the deal wasn't even necessary. That is something that I've sort of debated because, again, I've watched it twice and I've I've yet to see any reason why they couldn't have just like rolled the dice and maybe it would have still worked out for them. I think that it's just like one of those things where it's like making the deal guaranteed that it works is the thing. And the thing is, is that we are shown, we are even shown in that very same episode, the penultimate episode that Verna knows what is going to happen if you don't take the deal. Cause there's the scene where she's talking to Mark Hamill and she actually offers him a deal and she's like, listen, Fortunato, the pharmaceutical company is gonna cl- is gonna shut down. There's gonna be all these like investigations. You can if you take this deal, you'll get away scot free. If you don't take this deal, you're you're going to jail for the rest of your life. Like because it's what's gonna happen. But if you take this deal, I'll make sure the evidence goes away. And he's just like, nah, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take my chances. Thanks. Like I, I've lived I've lived enough of a life. So like maybe Verna. Maybe she would have like straight up just made it so that their plan wouldn't have worked if they didn't take the deal. I don't know. Because she does point out, she's like, if they don't take the deal, Roderick would have been a poet. So presumably that means that their plan wouldn't have worked, you know, because you could still be a poet in jail. (laughs) True, you can. (laughs) So like, I don't know, maybe maybe that that's that's where we're to infer that if they didn't take the deal. If things wouldn't have worked out. Although then again, you can also be a poet while being a uh, ruthless pharmaceutical ceo i suppose i also i like the the reveal that he would have been a poet because then it explains like how he's able to do the needle drop in the last episode where he just starts going into the raven which is like when you're talking to a friend you don't just suddenly stare down the barrel of the camera and just go once upon a midnight dreary while i pondered weak and weary like you like nobody talks like that 
unless you're a poet, so <laughs> a poet with a flair for the dramatic. Oh uh, man, though, though, though his uh, his uh, performance of reading the Raven was oh, God. super good. Yeah, can we talk? Wow. Can we talk about Bruce Greenwood. Like holy, we can talk about shit. Bruce Greenwood. Holy fucking shit, dude! He just like so. If you didn't know, Bruce Greenwood was not the original actor cast for that role. It was actually Frank Langella was meant to play him, but there was like a bunch of allegations that came out that Frank Langella was like being real shitty on set. Um, I'll let you figure out what that means i'm not going to go into it uh so he was actually netflix investigated it and then fired frank langella and so flanagan was like oh shit i need a roderick usher uh i worked with greenwood on gerald's game so like let's just have him come in and bruce greenwood's just as my brother put it i was talking to him about this he's like bruce greenwood seems like the kind of guy who lives like around the corner from the studio and like oh shit i need somebody i'll just call greenwood and he's just gonna down to do whatever uh but he just like he showed up and he he owned that entire series like he showed up halfway through production had to reshoot a bunch of shit that someone else had already done there are a whole bunch of scenes that he didn't get to like actually be in it with actors he was just shooting his his solo shot by himself like he was he was fighting an uphill battle and to me this is bruce greenwood's series like he owns this series absolutely absolutely his he had so much gravitas and even though he was playing like a pretty shitty person you couldn't help but he was like just so compelling and it's it's really challenging when your protagonist essentially is a piece of shit yeah exactly and so you know like i mean i think i mentioned this earlier it's kind of hard to just like hate him and i think a lot of that had to do with his performance and one of the great reveals we already talked about lenore a little bit it was very clear that roderick loved lenore he genuinely and he probably doesn't, loved her yeah and he doesn't love anything you didn't like you you got the feeling that he cared about his children but in like a they're my family i don't have to love them but i do have to like you know they are still family kind of way but lenore you're like he he adored lenore um and so there's a great reveal you have him like his phone will go off periodically in, a, oh God, in one of the it. That shit conversation scenes um and augie keeps asking like oh who's that it's like oh it, it's it's just lenore I, I i don't have to I, I don't have to get back to her right now it's okay and there's kind of a weird subplot with madeline's obsession with artificial intelligence and it's essentially i read that as her sort of like project to try and get around the deal because yeah. she was always a full believer that that was what was going to happen and so it was kind of her immortality project and so there's a it's it's not super important to the whole plot. It's mostly just to build to this reveal that Lenore is dead the whole time, essentially, because it's not actually her that's texting him. It's the AI version of Lenore. And apparently it's glitched out and it just texted him the words nevermore over and over and over again, which, which you know, very good nod to the Raven. Shit, that shit legit gave me chills. That was horrifying in in a very unique way. Um, which I think that it's like, it's this like digital techno horror kind of thing that was going on. Kind Very of black mirror, especially because like you could see if you look at the text, it's like trying to figure out how to spell nevermore because it's like kind of gibberish. And then it's the last, the last message that it sent is properly spelled nevermore. 
Because it's like jumbling the letters and like not having enough of the letters and all that sort of stuff. And then the last one says nevermore properly. And it's just like, it was, that was spooky. And he he sold that moment so, so well. Because you you can tell that he himself is fucking terrified by this. And at the same time, also like filled with deep regret. And it's just so good. Uh, Bruce Greenwood, I would say that there are two actors in the show. Bruce Greenwood and Carla Gugino, who... I think that it is criminal that they are not bigger stars than they are because they are just so goddamn talented. And I like I would say that about any time that I have seen these people pop up like fucking spy kids. Gugino is just like right there rocking it with Antonio Banderas and just is so much fun. And then obviously in The Haunting of Hill House, she is this very this very like disturbing and dark presence but also like very damaged presence over top of it in gerald's game she does such a good job of selling vulnerability and selling true genuine fear and you got bruce greenwood who you know he has films such as the fucking core this piece of shit movie that science was so bad that the u.s government established an office of like science outreach to media to like make sure that science wasn't fucking that inaccurate ever again and he's in it for like 10 minutes but he's so much fun for the amount of time he's in there or the now did the core come out before armageddon or it was uh 2003 i think it came out i think it was one of those things where it was like armageddon came out and so they like rushed a movie into production and it was the core because it has the same kind of vibe no i was talking about like inaccurate science and stuff (laughs) yeah i mean armageddon is a whole other thing uh but yeah and then you have the jj abrams star trek films where he plays pike and he does such a great job at it and again gerald's game he he plays this like he plays this like fucked up husband who has a heart attack and then he plays the ghost of the fucked up husband who's like torturing carly gino the entire time it's he is so damn good both of them are so damn good and i i think that they deserve all of the recognition in the world to the point that when the emmys roll around or when any awards roll around this award season, if they are not nominated, I riot. And if and if one of them does not win, I will throw a chair. I'm not going to quite riot if they don't win, but I will at the very least throw a chair. Because I believe wholeheartedly that they deserve it. Well, prepare to throw chairs. I don't think the Emmys usually nominate shows like this for awards. Usually. So I'm predicting chair throwing in your future, which, you know, Probably. we can... <laughs> We can do a thing. We can do a thing where we film you throw a chair or something. <laughs> That's a social media poll is what that is. Um, there is one one scene that I particularly want to draw attention to with Greenwood's performance. And also just because it was such an emotionally impactful scene overall. And that is when he was speaking to kind of the spirit of his ex-wife um, at, yes. at the funeral. Yes, That's an incredible scene. Uh, so like the entire show leading up in flashbacks, you see his wife, Anna Lee, but they don't ever tell you like where she is because obviously he's married to someone else and he's had a whole bunch of mistresses since her. And so like, they don't ever, they don't ever say where Anna Lee is. Um, and so at this funeral, you see her talking to this woman and this woman, like, she doesn't look like she's aged at all. She looks different, but she doesn't look like she's aged at all. So they're like, there is that split second moment where you're like, is she still alive? And she's like scolding him because like he was a piece of shit and took her kids away from her. Um, but then you like very quickly figure out, oh, she's 
she's like either a figment of his imagination or she's fucking dead and it's verna fucking with him and you especially figure that out when she turns her back to him and there's a giant fucking gaping bullet hole in the back of her head which is is classic flanagan like spooks like i'm gonna give you a very emotional moment and then i'm gonna show you something unexpectedly disturbing uh to kind of close out this this touching emotional moment greenwood just embodies regret in that moment as she is like sitting there saying like you took my children away from me in a way that i couldn't ever possibly get them back because you had money you were this rich man of course they're gonna go with you you're promising them this fantastic life full of luxury and everything that they ever wanted how could i ever have possibly competed with that and she's like maybe maybe my children died the day that you took them maybe that would have been better and yeah that was and then there's that final line i think she says something like like the poverty of you is like hmm really really gut punch right there just it gets you like right in the soul and it was such such a both of the performers i don't actually remember the actress's name which is unfortunate because she does an amazing job there but both of them just absolutely crushed that scene and like it's moments like that that is the reason why i'm borderline obsessed with this show because there's such fantastic performances, such gripping moments that just grab a hold of you and don't let you go until the episode is over. You know, you just don't get in a lot of stuff anymore or really anywhere ever. You don't really get stuff that is that powerful. And I think that that is something that Flanagan does super, super well is is a major selling point of why he keeps reusing actors like over and over and over again in all of his projects, you know, obviously he's married to one of them. Uh, so of course he's going to keep using, uh, Kate Siegel. Yeah. Of course he's going to keep, using not, not, not to be confused with Katie Seagal. Yes. No, uh, quite different. Um, although if Katie Seagal popped up in a Flanagan project, I would be all for it. Oh yeah, totally. But oh. it's just like, everybody does such a damn good job and it's so they're so believable as these shitty people who are awful but you still wind up giving a shit about them because they show vulnerability in like very strong and powerful ways um, except for freddy except for freddy but you 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 can't take your eyes off of freddy because of how just like shitty he is and i think that it's that actor does such a like 180 from his role in Hill House where he played this this dad who was just trying to like protect his kids from his wife like freaking basically losing her mind and uh trying to kill all of the children. So having this like very caring father figure suddenly become this like snobby, snooty, uh drug-addled, paranoid piece of shit was just a fantastic flip on what I expected out of that actor. So as much as I love the conversation between between uh, Roderick and the ghost of Annabelle Lee, if I had to nitpick this show, which I feel like I have to because we can't just gush about it the entire time, can we? I mean, we've already gushed about it for almost an hour. So, so if there's one part of the show that I found to be like slightly underbaked, it's the whole drug company thing because that's such an integral part of the whole story and it's pretty clear that they were basing the ushers very loosely on the Sackler family who is obviously the most notable for creating 
a lot of people would say they're directly responsible for the current opioid crisis that we live in. And so it seemed like the show was really trying to make some kind of moral statement about the pharmaceutical company and the pharmaceutical industry and industry and capitalism and all that stuff. You know, it's obviously there. It's there throughout this throughout the story, but it wasn't that much of a central point. I don't know if I'm making sense, but what I would have loved to see, because they talk about this, the drug itself is called Ligodone, which I think is basically Oxycontin. Basically. It's a pill that so, heal the world or whatever the fuck. Heal the world. It's completely non-addictive, as, as Roderick I'm, said many times. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't hear heal the world now without thinking of Spider-Man 2, because I just finished that game, and Harry Osborn says heal the world so fucking much in that game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think they could have done a little bit more with it, especially they have his, his uh, latest wife is named Juno, and she's like was in some horrible accident and has been taking this medicine for for years and is kind of like a lot of it like like he most of anybody he points out because she takes like five a day or something like that which is like some insane amount Um, yeah like so much so that because she's like i want to stop and roderick points out he's like if you stopped cold turkey you would die like yeah just kill you so and so they have her and I liked her character, but I don't think I felt like she didn't have a lot going on, especially in a more thematic sense, which I, th- I figured that was kind of her main purpose because she's like a, essentially completely physically dependent on this drug or else she would literally die. And so I kind of would have liked to see the Annabelle Lee's death be related to the drug. Like maybe she was found herself in some kind of accident and she was taking the drug and she was like the first person to take it. And so she would become like the first victim of Ligodon. And I thought that would have added a lot of narrative weight to the whole pharmaceutical plot, essentially. And it would have made Roderick a bit more villainous to like watch his wife die from this, but still go ahead and try and sell it to people. And then it would have given Anna and Juno more of like a connection because he has this whole speech about her being like her. She's like perfect because she can take so much of this and not die essentially. And so that's something I thought would have been interesting to see. Again, it's it's mostly a nitpick because really that's you get that incredible speech with between the two of them. Yeah. That's really all you can do with this show, I feel, is just like nitpick small things. Like there's no major fundamental problem with it. Like everything is just so finely crafted and put together that any complaints that I can even think of are just like small little non-starters. I will say that that is probably, I think, the biggest thing is the the whole like opioid crisis part of it feels very much like just a throwaway element to explain why he's talking to Augie when they could have done a little bit more with it. Yeah, I think you could have replaced it with like any exploitative industry and it you wouldn't have, have been, really have changed like anything or an arms or a weapons manufacturer or something like yeah. it could have been anything and it wouldn't have really changed it fundamentally. Although that being said, so I think really like hammering home that would have been nice. The name Fortunato 100% sounds like a drug company. Um, oh, yeah. Like, and of course, they had to work in Fortunato because Captain <laughs> Montiato, however the hell you say that, you know, it, the guy's name is Fortunato. So, of course, they had to work that in. But yeah, no, it is just such a, it is such a well-crafted series. There are small little things that could have been done, and especially over the course of a television series, they had room to put it in. Because oftentimes when it comes to like stuff like that, 
the argument can be made. Oh yeah, they could have done that. They could have like had more of the drug stuff as an integral part of the plot, but maybe they just didn't have time. But it's like this is a Netflix series, and the episodes don't have a set duration, so they probably could have like worked in an extra scene or two to like maybe carry some more weight. I will say I do like the the idea of Annabelle Lee being kind of the first victim of the drug. Um, but again, as you pointed out, because we didn't have that, we got that brilliant scene between her and Roderick, which I don't think would have had the same emotional weight if we had previously heard that she, or even seen that she had died from Ligodon. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that because having the reveal that she <clears throat> was driven to suicide by him is like pretty, pretty rough. And it doesn't make him <laughs> like seem any better one way or the other, really just a bit, a little bit less hands-on, in her death in in the way that we got it so owen uh i think that we should probably wrap up our discussion here so uh i'm gonna ask you for two things first and foremost is i i want to know on a scale of one to ten like how do you how do you think that you would rate the fall of the house of usher and then also on top of that i i want to hear like your final closing like your like blurb if i was putting this on the box for a dvd copy of this show what would be your blurb? What would you have to say that sums up your basic thoughts broadly? Well, first off, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with an eight point seven five out of ten. A because just it's it's nearly impossible to give anything a ten. Yeah, and I've mentioned this earlier. I thought that the first two episodes, episodes one and two, and then episode seven and eight were just like pitch perfect, incredible stuff. Glued to my seat. Didn't even like wasn't even tempted to look at my phone, even though it was right there, which is incredibly rare for any piece of media that I watch. And then the standout in the middle was the Telltale Heart. And then the rest were still like excellent, just not quite up to that level. So maybe if they were all at that level for me, it could have been approaching a 10, but 8.75 is an excellent score. So don't come at me, Mike Flanagan. (laughs) As far as a blurb goes, I would say that this is modern Gothic horror executed to perfection. Because there's, it's it's hard to describe gothic horror, but you you feel it, you see yeah. it in every sort of aspect of the filmmaking and the pacing and the editing and the color. Like it just feels, it feels grand. Yeah, it feels heavy. It feels like it's a big morality tale. Yeah, gothic horror, modern gothic horror done to perfection. That's solid. Uh, I'm gonna be bold. Uh, obviously, I absolutely love this this series. I I desperately hope that Netflix gives us a physical copy, like they did with The Haunting of Hill House and a couple other things. I hope that they give us a physical copy because I want to own this show so that I can show it to everybody ever. Uh, even even when Netflix inevitably shuts down their servers and goes out of business in like whether that's you know next year or 500 years from now i want to be able to show everybody this this series because to me this is a a major achievement within the world of horror i think that this is a fantastic series that i am going to i will revisit this series plenty of times in the future i would not be surprised if this series becomes a yearly rewatch for me uh because i i just love it to pieces it is so so well crafted so well performed it is just absolutely brilliant to me so i'm gonna go out uh, go out there and i'm gonna give it a 9.5 out of 10 
which I think realistically might be the highest score that I can give before I start questioning my sanity. Because <laughs> anything higher than a 9.5 to me is borderline perfection. And while this is about as close as I think a Netflix series can get, only minor, very, very minor gripes aside, it is just so damn good. I love every every second of this show. Now, one last thing that I do want to know. I just thought of this. Having watched this show and you not being somebody who really has read Poe or really checked out Poe, does this make you want to? Does this make you want to dive into Poe and kind of like maybe go back and read these stories or watch other adaptations of these stories that they had done for this show? Oh, absolutely. One of the first things I did after watching the finale, after, after you know, collecting myself again, was watch the part three of the original Treehouse of Horror, where we get the Simpsons adaptation of The Raven, just because I wanted to see it. Um, that was good. And yeah. I, I absolutely want to see more adaptations and, you know, maybe dive into the actual literature. It's been a while since I've read anything that I would consider to be literature. I mostly read nonfiction, but well, luckily enough, I think um, this will do a big, big Poe revival. Luckily enough, uh, pretty much every single one of the stories that was adapted here uh, are, are short stories as opposed to like full novels. Poe didn't really do big novels like that. Um, I think The Raven being, I think, the longest of the stories that are here, which The Raven's actually more of like a, an epic poem than a story necessarily. I would recommend if you're looking for any adaptations of Poe stuff, basically just look at anything that Vincent Price did that is post story because he did he did quite a few poe stories back in the day like he did mask of the red death i think he did pit in the pendulum uh i think he did black cat he did he did a few others and they're all they are all definitely worth watching i think that to me to me vincent price is synonymous with edgar Allan poe like in my head i've always like associated the two of them so definitely go and check out vincent price's filmography really uh, if you enjoy Poe or if you want to get into Poe. Edgar Allan Poe stories are actually like pretty quick reads. So even if you got like 10 minutes on the toilet, you could probably get through uh, like Goldbug in that time. So, you know, check it out. Have a good time with it. Owen, where can people find you on the internet? Um, again, if you're looking for a mattress, you can probably find me if you just Google any, just insert you the are, name of any mattress. You are, you are kind of the king of mattress reviews, I've realized. Like, because I've seen you pop up, like, just at... I gotta be, if, I mean, if I'm gonna be king of something, I guess it's not too bad. But, uh, I mean, I think there are worse things to be the king of. There's certainly much better things to be the king of, but... You know, mattress reviews is kind of your bread and or butter. So uh, I'm going to eventually do stuff that's not that eventually check me out. Check me out on Instagram if you want to see not posting. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel about Instagram, too. I'm trying desperately to be better with it. It's just I I have such a hard time. It's it's the posting pictures element of it. If Instagram was text only, I think I would already be posting a shit ton, which is which can be shown by the fact that I have recently started posting a lot more on Twitter, which is actually kind of hilarious because Twitter is a dumpster fire right now. It's like, of course, I would choose when the website is literally in flames to actually start properly using it the way that it's meant to be used. Yeah, but anyways, get over and check out Owen on Instagram. You can check him out on uh, the Mattress Reviews. 
again just google pretty much any mattress and his video you're gonna see his his mug in the thumbnail i know if you're listening to it as a podcast you don't you might not necessarily know what he looks like but just think about the voice you'll get to know you'll get to know what i look like listen to his voice close your eyes and picture what he you think he looks like in your head and you are probably right (laughs) (laughs) is that a compliment i don't know i take it however you want to take it owen uh but yeah go check those out you can find me on uh collider dailies uh several times a week that is a live show over on the collider extras youtube channel where we do a like live stream news show every morning at 10 a.m pacific you can find me there you can also find me on twitter i am at bender waffles b-e-n-d-e-r-w-a-f-f-l-e-s it is twitter not x i'm sorry actually i'm not sorry elon fuck you elon uh it's it's twitter and it will forever be twitter um you can also find me on instagram under the same thing although again i don't post too too often uh and i'm on threads under the same thing so like go to threads i guess I have a code for Blue Sky. I just haven't used it yet. But yeah, just go ahead and check those out. We will be back next time where we will probably be talking. I think we're going to be talking childhood cartoons with Esh, I think is the plan yes. for the next episode. So be sure to check that out. Uh, like, follow, all that stuff. Uh, rate us on all your podcast platforms to help get the show out there. But uh, anyways, until next time, guys and gals and non-binary pals, have a good one. Thank <laughs> you.